this is Larry Lessig. I'm an old man, at least relatively speaking, and as an old man, I've given many, many, many talks. My CV reports over a thousand lectures given across the course of my career, and the vast majority of them, I believe, have been about our so-called democracy. And I still remember what I think will be the most consequential of those thousand-plus lectures. It was in Seattle. I was talking about my then-just-published book, Republic Lost. That book describes a distinctive corruption that I think describes America's corrupt democracy. The corruption of the dependence that political candidates have on the private funding of their campaigns, a dependence on those funders. And that dependence, I argued, is corrupting because it inherently conditions representatives to be responsive to the needs of their funders first. Boss Tweet, the head of the Tammany Hall Democratic Party political machine in the 19th century New York City and state, used to say, I don't care who does the electing as long as I get to do the nominating. It doesn't take a political scientist to see the genius in that insight. If you can control who can run, you control who wins regardless of who wins more votes. Tweedism, let's call it, was the strategy of the Old South, where states like Texas forbid blacks from voting in the Democratic primary at a time when only the Democratic Party had any power in Texas. There, too, racists didn't need to worry about who actually won the election because they had already filtered the list of candidates to assure only the racists were running. And that's what big money does in American politics today. You can't run for office in America unless you can raise money. And only if you do raise money can you be a relevant candidate. Of course, to have any power, you need to win. But money has put you on the list of those who can win. And that means, like Boss Tweed, money controls. Now, the remedy to this kind of corruption is to change how campaigns are funded. And that's what the Seattle speech, just as I had in hundreds of other speeches argued as well. That's what I argued in the Seattle speech had to happen across America. And there, I described one idea that I then thought and still think makes the most sense. Vouchers. Give every voter a number of vouchers, which they can then give to the candidates they want to support to help those candidates fund their campaigns. And then the voters not the tweeds, are the funders. Of all the changes that could change the power of money in politics, this idea, which I had stolen from Bruce Ackerman and Ian Ayers, and which Rick Hazen had described as well, seems to me to be the most powerful idea. Alan Durning heard this idea during that Seattle speech. Durning had started Sightline, which is an independent nonprofit research and communications center in Seattle in 1993. Sightline has been devoted to great ideas that could make the Northwest, including Seattle, obviously, work better. 
He was a graduate of Oberlin College. He had long worked in policy reform, including democratic reform, and he believed he could take the idea of vouchers and make it part of Seattle's law. In this episode, he tells that story, as well as the story, as he sees it, of how vouchers could matter to democracy more generally. Thus, here again, we have an overturned table, tweetist funding of campaigns that we could easily write through the structure of funding through vouchers. Enjoy the conversation. So, Alan, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, You and I got to know each other a long time ago and the beginning of a process that um, you were pretty instrumental in, in bringing some important changes into Seattle. I wonder how you think about the beginning of that and and what you thought you were solving or helping to solve when you were part of that process. Mm. Uh, Well, thanks, Larry. It's it's really an honor to get to talk with you a little bit and with your listeners as well. Um, In... 2012 and 13, I, as the director of Sightline Institute, which is a policy research center in Seattle, was paying a lot of attention to how to improve our democracy. Because all the problems that we work on, that my organization works on as our um, main mission about environmental sustainability and climate change and clean energy and uh, sprawl and so on, we were just getting stuck. The systems government weren't working at the federal level, the state level, at the local level as well. And uh, so I was thinking hard about democracy itself and how to how to make it function better. Um, and I, I um, read a lot of work by you and a few other theorists and scholars suggesting that money in politics was a driving uh, source of the problem, that, that the fact that politicians have to spend half or more of their time dialing for dollars, um, you know, that to probably to quote you, they're like uh, telemarketers who, who moonlight running the government. Um, and uh, and then in Seattle, we had uh, a sort of a train wreck when the very liberal city council put before the voters a, a ballot measure that would have implemented a public campaign finance system. And the voters um, turned it down. But by a very narrow margin. Um, and I felt um, foolish, um, giant missed opportunity. I had not engaged. I assumed that it would pass. I think a lot of people did. Uh, and so I turned a lot of my attention at that point to, you know, what can we do to um, remedy that situation, to make up for that failure, the fact that that many democracy reformers in Seattle had not paid attention to this measure that the council had put in good faith before the voters and the voters had, had narrowly turned down. I think we only, only missed it by 1,500 votes out of, you know, several hundred thousand cast. And um, there was just not much of an organized campaign for it. What was the nature of the um, reform that uh, they tried to pass? So, um, not to go too deep into the Balkan-like history of um, democracy reform in the city of Seattle, uh, but over decades there had been a whole bunch of different plans and proposals and commissions and so on and so forth. And and in 2013, the 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 city council put before the voters a proposal to adopt a system of public campaign funding uh, just for council races, that is ignoring the the two executive branch positions that are elected, the the mayor and the city attorney, and to base it on New York's um, system, which is called a super match, where for every $50 contribution that an individual makes, the, um, the city 
uh, campaign finance authority would provide some multiple of that. In Seattle, I think the formula was about a six-fold increase. So um, this is a pretty darn good system, and uh, it should have been adopted, but it, the, the council proposed it and the voters didn't go for it. There was a whole lot of other stuff going on at the time in, in city politics that probably explains why it didn't pass. But yeah, I mean, remember, C- city of Seattle is a, um, a very reform-minded place, a place where the most valuable uh, endorsement is probably the League of Women Voters. Uh, it's a city that it's, it's, it is a city with very high levels of education, um, with a very high level of trust in surprisingly high levels of trust in local government. Especially, it votes for uh, for Democrats uh, almost universally. I think Biden won with ninety three or ninety four percent of the vote. So, this this is a, this is a place where um, the usual American arguments about public campaign finance. Um, are not as salient, you know. In most places, you're like, why do we want to give? Why do we want to give government money to politicians? That's not so much the problem here. So, okay. So then you saw this fail. You decided to um, push for something that was different, but this, but similar objective to remove the power of big big money. Yeah, and, and so voters voted it down. And uh, I went uh, apologetically to the to the group of young people who had organized the campaign for it, and. Uh, uh, lamented that I didn't uh, I didn't help, and that so many apparently a number of other people were doing the same thing, and a, a coalition began to began to form. And initially, the, all the coalition did was go to the city council and ask them to put the same measure back on the ballot, and promise this time to be good and organize an actual campaign and send mailers out and go to, go to the forums and um, speak on behalf of it and activate our activist lists and all the rest. And uh, the council listened seriously and decided not to do that because basically because they had too many other things they wanted to put on the ballot. And because the they said, well, look, you know, that's disrespecting the voters. They just said no. So we're not gonna we're not gonna do that. And in a way that was really good news for us because uh, it put back in this coalition, which is getting bigger and bigger, the opportunity to think bigger and bolder than the council's small plan. Over 2014, the coalition got bigger and I began uh, pushing hard for us to do something innovative, and that is to try and um, demonstrate that democracy vouchers could work at the city level. So so it's impossible for me to imagine, but not everybody understands what a yeah, so democracy voucher is. Yeah, so democracy voucher is an idea that I got from you, Larry. Um, and, I, and I think there... And I had stolen it from people yeah, before, so Bruce, it's not my idea. Right, so Bruce, I think Bruce Ackerman and uh, one of his co-authors there, another law professor, had written about it. And, and there are probably some... Yeah, Ian Harris. And then probably going back, there were some other theorists who had talked about it. But the idea was... Um, so all, all public campaign uh, funding systems put aside some pool of money and then they have some mechanism for distributing it to candidates who qualify. Um, as you know, because of federal court rulings, it, uh, public funding of campaigns can't be mandatory for the candidates. It has to be optional. And so part of the challenge of designing the system is to come up with uh, a system that's attractive enough for candidates that they will opt in. So the two main flavors before democracy vouchers came along, first was um, clean election grants, where you just, if, if a candidate qualifies typically by getting lots and lots of signatures and maybe $5 contributions from each of them, then they get a, they just get a chunk of money, they just get a check and they can go run their campaign. Uh, and then matching funds are the alternative. I described that already a little bit as how, what, what New York did and what was proposed in Seattle. You go out and collect small contributions and the, the, the campaign funding authority will triple match, quadruple match, sextuple match them, whatever. Um, the idea of democracy vouchers is to take, to take the same pool of public money, um, but to sort of allocate it out in coupons that are sent to voters. And um, the, the, 
In campaign terms, the beauty of this is to, is to uh, eliminate the difference between voter outreach and fundraising. What it, tells, what it tells candidates is, just go talk to donors, just to voters. Mm-hmm. But there's no difference anymore, see? Who are donors? Right? Yeah, just right. go talk to voters and along the way, try to convince them to vote for you and also to give you their, give you their vouchers. It, um, it, it eliminates the distinction between the, sort of the power of numbers of people and the power of dollars. So can't, it no longer is rational for candidates to spend their time dialing for dollars uh, and you know, cozying up to, to the richest uh, constituents in their district. So, so that's, that's the basic idea of vouchers. And there are a number of reasons why it, it seems especially powerful to me as a, uh, as a strategy, because in this populist age, it's a time that um, it, it is a method that um, gets the government agency kind of into the background. They actually do have a role. They have to turn the voucher into, into money for the donor. But it, it really puts the emphasis on, on the, re- the relationship between candidates and voters. That seemed really powerful to me. Yeah, so um, that relationship um, changes the way candidates um, run their campaigns, right? It now becomes important, as you were just saying, to connect to voters early on because they need to connect to voters to right. get their money into their system. Um, and, and so... What's interesting about the Seattle story, you've had, three now. I guess, now three two now. real cycles mm-hmm. of running. Mm-hmm. Three now, right, 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 right. And and so what are we learning about um, what actually happens when campaigns mm. pick this up and use it as a Yeah, technique? well, um, gosh, there's a lot of things. The, the, the most important thing is that this method works. That is to say, the way we design the system has led to extraordinary participation from candidates. There are a couple of candidates who have opt, who have not chosen to opt into the system over the three election cycles and what is it, 16 or 17 uh, different open seats that we've elected with this. But almost almost all of them have opted into the system, and that's that's an exceptionally good sign. Um, it is it is um, mm-hmm. intuitive for voters. They get it. They like it. They understand it. It doesn't. Sit, there's there's been no scandal. My my nightmare when designing the system in 2014, 2015, getting ready for a campaign for it, um, was that we would have some scandal that would tarnish your brainchild, Larry, uh, and 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 that every time any other city or state or ultimately the federal federal government tries to adopt this, that the story would go through every news story about how there'd been some scandal in Seattle. We've had no scandal. We've had no not a whiff of fraud or abuse or anything else. It's just sort of. Um, working great. And we've had a near doubling of how many candidates are running and an increase in the diversity of candidates who are running. And to this day, at least half of the candidates will say, oh, I wouldn't run without democracy vouchers. The thought of, you know, yeah, the, and, and, the, and the reason is that they're happy to talk to people, but they don't have a Rolodex full of, uh, of lawyers and bankers and, and, and tech executives. So, so they know all they have to do is talk to um, talk to voters and then talk to organizations that include a lot of voters. So to the Sierra Club or the, the business the business association in the neighborhood or trade unions, whatever. Okay, so but they but voters then receive a, a mailing from the city, um, and mm-hmm. the mailing includes yeah. really physically coupons like things you tear out and hand to people. That's right, um, and. Uh, did you find a lot of people originally just had no idea what this was and kind of threw it away, thinking it was just junk mail they were getting from some scam organization? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a good question. So 
The voters of Seattle, uh, as voters across Washington, are used to voting by mail and they're used to getting official election um, correspondence in envelopes with a certain appearance. And so the Seattle vouchers arrived in such an envelope. It looked like official election mail. And certainly some people didn't know what it was, especially the first year, um, and probably tossed them. But there's a way to get replacement vouchers if you need them. And, um, and now there's a way that you can do it all online. You don't have to have the physical paper anymore, as you did in the very first cycle. So well, we've found that almost everybody in the city now knows about the program. And the total number of people who have used vouchers is now up to maybe 13, 14% of all adults in the city. Um, now that makes that for people who are not worked, used to working in elections, that may not seem like a very big number, right? Um, but in fact, it's a huge number, right? So Seattle now has the highest rate of, of, of giving to campaigns, including the vouchers, um, ever recorded in the United States. The previous record holder was Vermont, at least that I've ever seen. And they, were, they, were, they had almost 6% of adults in the state had given to one campaign or another. And in the last election here in Seattle in 2021, we had 7.6% of adults participating in the donor campaign. It's in the, in the voucher system. They gave vouchers to someone. And it's something like a six-fold increase over how many people were giving to campaigns before. And this participation leads to other forms of participation. So there are academic studies that suggest that uh, voter turnout has increased, that uh, volunteerism has increased on the campaigns. People are actually giving more cash as well. So in order... So in order for candidates to use the vouchers, they have to agree to limit their total spending, but they can still accept um, small cash contributions up to $250 for most races or $500 for the mayor's race. And there's been a more than doubling in the number of cash donations since before the system. So people are giving their vouchers and then, and then they, you know what? I really like that candidate. I'm gonna send him a check for hundred bucks. So the average size of the cash donations has gone way down but the number of them has more than doubled um, since before the voucher system. So, I mean, this is the kind of positive circle that I only dreamed about when we launched the program was that it would um, draw people in more deeply. It would get candidates to spend all their time reaching out to voters. It would get voters to feel like they had real power. Like, you know, they, I, they, they've got these four coupons that make them feel like the, the bankers and the tech executives of, of your. And I just wish we could spread it more places more quickly. So I mean, what's, what's striking about this story is that you had a latent desire to adopt reform that had failed, and you mm -hmm. could just basically take advantage of that move, movement, um, which means that the argument was really an argument about what's the best way to do what you basic, everybody had basically decided should be done. How do you do public funding? Um, you, you, you must be involved in these conversations with other cities that are right now considering it. There's been some talk at the state legislature level, but mainly in cities. So we had Oakland um, uh, that just did it, and uh, LA is very close, I think, to, to doing the same thing. What, what is the nature of the conversations you're having with them? Are they people who are skeptical, or are they people who see you now as the oracle of uh, ending the corruption of democracy? Or No, being the oracle, that's your job, <laughs> brother. Um, so... Let me say just a tiny bit more about, about my, my theory of change here. But the theory is that in order for an innovative tool to be considered um, a real option, it has to be demonstrated somewhere. 
And so one of the important reasons for running this campaign in Seattle in 2015 was to demonstrate that the system could work and make it an available off-the-shelf option for other places. So Seattle had a problem in terms of the um, excess influence of high-income uh, neighborhoods and donors. We, we did a big study before, during the campaign that showed that, the, that you know, 0.3% of donors were giving two-thirds wow. of the money, that they were all coming from the, from, you know, from view homes in the, in the richest neighborhoods, that it was the, it was, you know, white, old, rich people with water views were funding all the campaigns in Seattle. Now, in, in the same case of Seattle, these are all, you know, um, probably Obama voters, but still we had a disproportionate influence of the donor class in Seattle. And um, so we were, we were helping to solve that problem, but we also were demonstrating that you could do it. Seattle had a few things going for it as well. We, you know, as I said, we already were used to getting, uh, we have high levels of trust in local government. We had, um, uh, we had voters who were used to getting uh, official election mail uh, for all their, you know, their ballots and their voters guides and all the rest. So getting vouchers in the mail didn't seem unusual. We have a, uh, the, the largest vote by mail county in the country at that time. And so they had all the mechanisms in place to verify the identities of the people who were signing their vouchers, the voters, right? So we actually run the vouchers mm -hmm. through the same ballot envelope verification system. We had a lot of the sort of back end. The city also has had a has a strong and well-respected election commission that could operate the voucher system. We we so, you know, when I looked around and thought about it, I thought, wow, Seattle's kind of the perfect place to demonstrate that this can work. And now when we're, when we're contacted by folks from other, other places, um, they want to know the mechanisms. They want to know, okay, well, you know, what do we need to put this in place? They no longer want to talk about, you know, is this, is this winnable? Because it clearly is. We won in Seattle. We came close uh, two years later in the state of Washington. I think it was too, too much too soon. Uh, but uh, South Dakota adopted vouchers, though then the legislature overturned it. And then Oakland, Oakland has done it. Austin came close. There was one other city, Al Albuquerque came close as well. But now that we've got three full election cycles and a bunch of academic studies, it's no longer um, just a uh, suggestion from a law professor. Um, <laughs> from a bunch of us. But, but, an but, a, but an actual program that's demonstrated. And I think, you know, I, I continue to think that the, we'll have more adoption in more places. Um, one thing that happened was that the national momentum around election reform and around democracy reform kind of shifted away from the money theme and on towards gerrymandering and so on with the Trump election. But the you know the the, the money problem didn't go away, and this is um, I think this will continue to be seen as the the cleanest, most ideology neutral strategy. Yeah, because I mean one thing that's really uh, uh, positive about the system, and I didn't even recognize this when we first was reading about it or writing about it, is that there's a debate among theorists about democracy reform about whether small-dollar public funding is actually a good thing. Um, because there are many people who think, I don't think they're right, but this is what is said, that if you depend on small-dollar donors, then you'll get more extremist money in um, because the type of people are going to put up their money, even if it's small-dollar, are um, extremists. Um, and and so this doesn't actually deal with the problem of polarization or the problem of politics that's appealing to the extremes. It's amplifying it. But vouchers mm -hmm. doesn't vouchers doesn't suffer from that problem because if you're giving vouchers out to everybody, 
and everybody is equally mm -hmm. able to be giving, it's much more likely you're going to have people in the middle who are not the extremists who are giving. Just, you know, there will be extremists giving, but everybody right. else will as well. So it's a way of having small-dollar public funding that doesn't uh, exacerbate the concern about polarization. And I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. We have, um, you know, donors tend to be the people who are most involved in politics. The people most involved in politics tend to have consistent ideologies, either conservative or progressive or libertarian or green or whatever. Um, and they tend, to, um, they tend to move towards the extremes. But what we've seen in Seattle is that the demographic profile of donors is moving closer and closer with each cycle, each election cycle we've been to, it's moved closer toward simply the demographic hmm. profile hmm. of voters. That's really important. Right? So there used to be there used to be huge differences between who the donors were. They were whiter, they were richer, they lived in certain neighborhoods, they, they had view homes, they could you know look at the water and, and Mount Rainier, and uh, and the demographic profile of the typical voter in this in the in the city. And what we've seen is is that now the the, the donors and the voters are kind of the same people. They're spread all over. Um, different candidates draw from different different voters. So it's really interesting to me that we are not seeing the same core group of X thousand people using their vouchers each cycle. So it's not it's not some sort of hyper-political class. There is something like two-thirds of the vouchers, if you look at all three election cycles, something like two-thirds of them are being given by um, people who have only used their vouchers once. They got excited about one mm -hmm. candidate, mm -hmm. basically, right from their neighborhood or you know whatever. And the other thing that the other thing to, to say is that you know the opposition, such as there was to the campaign in 2015 when we were pushing for adoption of vouchers in the first place, and this was a great big campaign, I should say, in which I played the role of you know sort of the policy nerd in the background. But the opposition, such as there was, was a worry that this was going to superpower the left in in the city of Seattle that this was a left-wing conspiracy. And I always argued that that was not true. This was, a, this was a game changer, but it was really about what were the incentives for candidates. That it was a game in which the local chamber of commerce could play just as powerfully as the trade unions, but the, 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 the incentive was no longer gonna be to write the biggest checks, it was gonna be to organize enough voters to make it worthwhile to the candidates to come and listen. And that's basically what we've seen. It has changed the game. And we've had certainly very strong progressive candidates running, more of them, but we've also had more moderate and centrist candidates running. Now this is Seattle. Again, the conservative end of the spectrum here is uh, sort of the middle of the American political spectrum. But um, in, in most of the elections since we started the voucher system, um, we've had as many sort of centrist candidates win as further left candidates win. In the most, the most recent cycle, we had sort of a it was described here as a backlash. I would say it was sort of a, a correction toward the center. And those candidates were using vouchers just like the, all the other candidates, right? So it, it's a, it, is this, it is a system where we're trying to get the money to reinforce the voting. That is, we want, to, we want democracy to work so that the elected officials are, are an honest representation of the electorate. I think it's been a success. Now, it, it doesn't solve every, everything by any Stretch the imagination. Seattle has been, like many places, flooded with independent expenditure campaigns. Um, it's happened at the same time as the vouchers have been going on, and so some critics say that they're that the vouchers have caused it. I believe it's just separate. Mm -hmm. It's a 
it's an exogenous trend Everywhere. that's happening yeah. most places. Yeah. yeah. Right? The big big money has figured out they can buy a lot of influence by pouring money in. And there's not a whole lot that the city can do about it. Those, you know, they're federal law and constitutional law issues in it. Yeah, confused though they may be. But um but I, I wonder mm-hmm. if you if there are examples about how candidates are innovating in the process of gathering vouchers. I mean, you know, it's not obvious what exactly the right strategy is to maximize the number of vouchers you might have. Are they having like block parties or they have people going door to door? What's the way that you facilitate the gathering? Yeah, well, the, the incentives um, the incentives are all about building your list, finding people-powered organizations, finding influencers, and people and candidates have gone about it in different ways. Um, I don't think there's a, a single model that has emerged, um, but uh, we have seen candidates doing a tremendous amount of uh, door-to-door, a tremendous amount of you know going to the farmers market or the neighborhood fair and, and talking to folks. We've seen some candidates hire, uh, well, recruit recruit a lot of canvassers and for them to try to collect vouchers. In some cases, they have actually hired canvassers who are trained and quite good at it to try to collect vouchers for folks. Um, and uh, what else? Um, a fair bit of emphasis on um, among, in, among incumbents on list building for themselves. So that makes them especially attentive to membership-based organizations with long, large memberships. So in Seattle, in the Seattle case, that would be like you know the the Black Lives Matter um, organizations, this you know the local Sierra Club, um, the the trade unions, but the local business associations do it as well. So it's it's still an evolving space and. You know, as you know well, Larry, there's there's a whole sort of industry around politics. There's a, a cadre of local political consultants and advertisers and campaign treasurers who will come in and help a candidate to uh, to navigate the space. And they're all figuring it out, too. They were some of them initially pretty opposed to it because they thought, oh, this is going to mess up our game. But they're figuring out as well about, you know. How do you run campaigns that are really people-centered? So if I were a candidate and I wanted to have a block party and I wanted to, like, have a chicken, you know, block party, you could come and have chicken and and something to drink. Um, I'm not sure if it could be alcohol or not. But um, I couldn't say, like, you can't come in and eat unless you hand me a voucher, right? That would be okay. But I could, I could run that and then say, come, and then give a speech and at the end say – if you, you know, want to support me, the easiest way is just to give me one of your vouchers. So, right? And and so... That's that's absolutely right. That's exactly that's what, they, what do. they do. That's and, uh, that's what they do. And that's what they do to the doors. That's what they do um, on the street corners. That's the campaigns are saying. Here's my pitch. Give me your vouchers. Uh, now, a tremendous amount of the actual giving of the vouchers happens through this online mechanism that the city election commission has established. So even though people are receiving their vouchers in the mail, it's not like they're carrying them around or digging them out to take them to the event and there are substitute voucher forms and all the rest. So as a, um, as a transaction, it's become fairly simple for the candidates and for the, for the campaigns. The, if there's anything that's, that I worry about actually is that popular candidates max out their voucher supply sometimes quite early. Right, like there's a total amount you can spend, and you can you can collect vouchers up to that level, but then the city cuts you off, right? Because you've agreed to spend more, no more than that, 
And so popular candidates in open or contested, heavily contested races, um, some of them are, are maxing out by, you know, by September. And, uh, and then people want to give them their vouchers, but the vouchers are wasted beyond that point. So as we, as we design uh, the, you know, the 2.0 of this, this is something that we need to think about. City will have to reauthorize the tax that pays for the voucher program in, before 2025. Um, and so there's a lot of talk now about how we're going to do that. Will the city council just adopt it or we're going to have to run another initiative again? Well, are we going to have to run a referendum again? But So that tax is, a, is some property-related tax, right? That's right. It's, um, so it's a silly thing. It's the smallest property tax the city has ever voted on in all of its history. It's $3 million a year, which is 0.065% of the city budget, less than the, less than the city spends on arborists. <laughs> um, it's, it's ridiculous for the voters of the city to be deciding, you know, it's on, at, on such a small caliber budget item. One, one state budget writer looked at it and said, Alan, this is budget dust. Why are you running an initiative for it? Well, I, I said, that's because the state required us to get voter authorization for this in the first place. Um, and but now that it's approved, the city council could just put it in the general fund and pay for it. Uh, however, the city is in a bit of a budget pinch. Downtown is uh, kind of empty. Seattle depends heavily on sales tax from um, downtown commerce, so the budget is crunched a bit. And and the council may say may decide to send that send it to the voters because that would allow them to raise the property tax by this $3 million. Anyway, again, this is deep, deep, deep details. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that we're going to continue with the system with the system in Seattle, but we may have to do some work to uh, win a campaign. That property again. tax actually triggered a uh, constitutional attack, um, which I actually right. was uh, helped with a briefing on, where I guess it's a libertarian organization called the Pacific... What is it called? The Pacific something. Um, Pacific Legal yes, Foundation, uh, I think. Said that it violated the Constitution for people to be forced to pay for things they didn't want to pay for, which I was like, wow, that's great. I have a whole list of de <laughs> defense expenditures I'd like to be exempted from because I'm just not too into these. Uh, to these, But obviously that case went nowhere mm -hmm. and um, that's right. seems pretty solid constitutional foundation. Um, but as you yeah. as you see the strategy, I mean, you've done a lot for Seattle, but how do you mm -hmm. imagine the strategy spreading? Like, do, do, how long do we have to stay at the city and state level? Um, you know, if it was it was interesting that the For the People Act, which was the you know the omnibus reform package that would have been the most important democracy reform package passed maybe ever included a really a pilot program for vouchers. Um, but they're still, we're pretty much committed to the idea of the New York model um, at the federal level. But I wonder, when you strategize about it, what do you, how do you imagine the quickest path to federal adoption of something like this? Yeah, that might be out of my, play, out of my pay grade. I, I think a lot about city and state adoption because I think that before something can become politically possible, it has to be politically thinkable. And I don't think that at the national level, democracy vouchers are yet politically thinkable. Um, mm -hmm. And the way that you get things to be politically thinkable is you demonstrate them in, in, in enough places. So, you know, if we look at another reform that Sightline, my organization has been very involved in, of uh, ranked choice voting and uh, especially multi-winner or proportional ranked choice voting, we've now got something like 60 cities and two 
two U.S. states that are using ranked choice voting in regular elections and some presidential primaries in a number of other states. It's And over the last year, we've begun to see that ranked choice voting is now part of the normal political discourse. It's still regarded as kind of weird and new, but it is at least thinkable, I think. So maybe we need to get democracy vouchers to that scale, like adoption in scores of cities and a few states. And then I think it maybe dawns on the federal level that um, that it could then it could happen. I mean, it's been in, it's been in a couple of bills um, and been mentioned in some presidential candidates' platforms. All of this is part of the process of moving something from beyond the pale to within the pale of uh, political thinkability. I mean, I wish there were a shorter path, but I'm not I'm not sure what it is. Well, it seems. I mean, I was particularly depressed with what happened in South Dakota because it's really critical that it becomes something that both the right and the left can point to right. as important for them. And if it had been in South Dakota and you had that overwhelmingly red state running elections with vouchers, it would have been easy to begin to push it much more broadly. But, you know, Seattle is, as Seattle, as you've described Seattle to be, the same thing with ranked choice voting. It's, it's ridiculous, but it's perceived in a partisan way because in the two prominent examples of its deployment, it displaced a Republican and, and elected a, a, a Democrat. But there's nothing inherent in it to make it like that. So it becomes important to push it in places where it's not partisan. That's exactly right. And, and right choice voting has, um, you know, parts of the right, the far right has embraced the narrative that right choice voting is partisan. But in fact, what it did in Alaska was reelect a very conservative Republican governor re-elect a very centrist um, Republican senator and elect a very conservative, frankly, Democrat. She is a uh, Alaska Native woman. So um, you would think from the, you know, the, the, the national, um, in the national narrative, it would seem like Mary Bell was, you know, uh, a member of the squad, but she's really not. And she's pro-oil development. She's, uh, she, she, her positions match very closely those of Lisa Murkowski. Um, mm-hmm. And what Ranked Voting Alaska did was super, was empower the independent voters of the state who outnumber the, the Democrats and the Republican combined and let the centrists run the show. Um, in Ranked Voting elected Eric Adams in the Democratic primary in New York City, mm-hmm. not the lefty candidate in that race. It elected Glenn Youngkin in the Republican primary in that case um, to go on and win the governorship. It's been it's being used now in 23 Utah cities, in most cases, red cities. So in that case, Utah's the great example. Yeah, I think I think in the case of ranked voting, we've done a better job um, than with with public campaign funding um, at succeeding in being bipartisan. And um, we do we we desperately needed that South Dakota win. And so it does it does hurt enormously. So, so just for your listeners, what happened was ballot measure passed. Voters approved it. And then the state legislature uh, overturned it, threw it out. There was lawsuits and fighting back and forth, and um, ultimately the the legislature prevailed. So we have not had uh, yet another win in a red state or city for democracy voucher, but it seems like that's an important part of the strategy. Yeah, and um, I mean, South Dakota is kind of funny in this way that... um, a really powerful one-party state like Massachusetts is. And one-party states invite a kind of self-dealing inside of the governments in a way that I think that's kind of astonishing. And it's surprising that the people don't in some sense rise up and say, what the hell? You know, we are 
the people and we told you to do this and you, you know, just openly ignore us or reverse us. That, that at some point should be costly, but apparently, apparently not yet. So when you, when you have, Sightline has done work in democracy, but not just work in democracy. Um, is, the, is the commitment now to democracy, I mean, mainly because you're becoming successful? I mean, you've been very successful, one of the most successful organizations pushing democracy reform. Maybe it could inspire other organizations around the country that are similarly, you know, progressive in the sense that they're trying to bring about change, not necessarily ideologically progressive. But do, do you see this as a model for other organizations like Sightline around the country? I, I certainly would hope so. I mean, the, the motive for it, Larry, originally going on 13 years ago was the recognition that nobody, right, left, or center, was getting good policy adopted. The system wasn't working. We just had gridlock and rising acrimony and hatred. Um, and so someone ought to work on the democracy itself. Someone ought, ought to look at the rules of the game. Because, um, And at that by that time, we were the largest um, public policy think tank in the, in the Northwest region. And so we felt like, well, maybe we should look into it a bit. So we started, you know, started small and, and gradually it's grown to become one of our larger programs. But um, but still, you know, tiny compared to um, the, the ad, issue advocacy in the region on other issues that are prom- of great importance to the right or to the left. I and mean, we have like, I don't know, three or four full-time staff basically working in Alaska, Montana, Washington and Oregon on this. Um, and in a lot, a lot of late nights, but an amazing group of allies and coalitions that we've been able to work with on individual issues. And um, there's a high level of cost effectiveness. Uh, thank you for crediting Sightline. I think we've been pretty effective, but I, I would put it to the to the larger movement. In, in gosh, going back uh, 10 or 11 years, the state of Washington um, failed to pass a really ambitious climate measure that Sightline had been working on for a really long time. And we were heartbroken about it. But meanwhile, we noticed that um, that education reformers had succeeded finally after a number of years of effort, maybe 10 years of effort, succeeded in passing a constitutional um, amendment or referring constitutional amendment to the to the voters that then passed. They changed the, the pass threshold for school levies from 60% down to 50%, or maybe it was for bonds. The net effect of that over the subsequent century, I expect will be additional billions of dollars of funding for for public schools, and th- that experience, like the week of our, me in my in my mourning over the climate measure, and thinking about what the education reformers had done, really convinced me that Sightline ought to be thinking hard about like what are the what are the rules and barriers that get in the way of big wins, and so maybe if we can't really care about climate, we ought to be working on democracy vouchers or ranked choice voting or or other things that make. It, that make it possible to actually have a government government that works. And that means that we will lose more policy fights, but hopefully we'll also win more policy fights. Mm-hmm. It's ironic that, you know, we have spent a lot of our effort in the last several years working on ranked choice voting in Alaska, first helping to win it, then implement it, and now to defend it. Um, it and arguably what we have done is made the world safe for Lisa Murkowski, with whom we disagree vehemently on climate policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I desperately think we need a society, a government in which there are Lisa Murkowski's to argue with in the U.S. Senate uh, over, you know, what the right energy policy is. Someone who will, you know, fight with us on, on you know, pipelines and oil extraction, but agree with us that fomenting insurrection is an impeachable offense, which is yeah. what Lisa Murkowski has done, right? 
That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I've experienced the same thing you have, this kind of aha moment um, argument with people where, you know, I've early on in this debate, people would say to me, you know, the really important issue is climate change. And I am somebody who do believes, I do believe the most important issue is climate change. But, you know, it doesn't have to be climate change. It could be equality or it could be schools or whatever. But when you get them to recognize how much harder their job is because of the broken democratic system, and you just say to them, what if you didn't have to actually persuade 60% in order to win 50%? What if, what if you could you know, actually just win on the merits as opposed to having to win by raising more money or by persuading the people with the big money? There's this point where they, they understand the slogan that I've tried to push, which is, it's not that this is the most important issue. It's just the first issue. It's the issue we have to resolve before we can resolve any of these other seriously more important issues. And um, I think you've demonstrated it. I think the point that you emphasize that I think is so critically important is theorists feel comfortable talking about theory. We feel comfortable reflecting on ideas. And when we become convinced that our idea is right, we just believe, well, let's just go do it. But most people are not theorists. Most people need to see it. They need to feel it. They need to understand it and watch it from beginning, middle to end. And so the work you're doing, I think, is the most important work to make reform possible. Because if you show it, if people can see it, then we can point to it. And it's not a book, but it's, uh, but it's real. And because it's real, it has a real chance to do something. So I'm grateful for the kind words you've given to me. But Alan, I've always thought of you as such a critical hero in this movement. And, uh, and we will win eventually. I hope we're around when we get it at the federal level, both of us. But uh, when we do, we can trace the beginning back to this particular moment in Seattle where you felt guilty that you didn't help public funding to get passed, but you actually succeeded yeah, in getting you. something better passed. Thank you. I, I will accept that. I will accept that praise on behalf of the uh, hundreds and hundreds of other people in the region that yeah. I've been able to work with. Of course. Okay. Thank you so much for talking uh, to us and, um, and for your work. And I look forward to more victories that we can celebrate together. You too. This has been the fourth episode of season five of the podcast, Another Way. These podcasts are produced in the abstract sense by equal citizens, in the literal sense by Josh Elstro of Elstro Productions. You can find more about equal citizens at equalcitizens.us. And you can give us your thoughts and feedback on that site. We... Okay, so I, I've got to change this in the script because the people running the site always get annoyed with emails, but I love the feedback, especially the ideas for other subjects and other ways of solving the problems we're talking about. So keep it coming. And of course, there too, you can find the ubiquitous red donate button. Everything we do at Equal Citizens requires a tiny bit of support. I've got a small staff because I just can't imagine raising money for a large staff. So we keep it as extremely lean. And what I do is pro bono, but there are expenses 
And if you could help support them, that would be enormously helpful for keeping these conversations going. Thanks again. Stay tuned for the second Overturned Tables conversation, which will continue the discussion on vouchers. Thank you.